0: This is Brent White and welcome back to my Sermon podcast. I know it's been a while since I've actually posted my sermons on this podcast. I, I took a little break as I was posting daily devotionals during the season of Advent. And I got great feedback from so many people that uh, I feel inspired to keep on posting devotionals regularly. Uh, every week, so please stay tuned for those. But I do want to get caught up on my sermons, and this sermon goes back to December third. It's about Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's about the angel Gabriel's annunciation to to Zechariah that he's going to be having a son who will be John the Baptist, and. Just think what a great blessing it must have been for Zechariah and Elizabeth to find out that at long last God is giving them a child, but that also God will be using them as part of God's saving plan for humanity. It's a great blessing, but please notice, as I point out in this sermon, sometimes God's blessings hurt. Did you hear that? Sometimes God's blessings hurt. I'll talk about that in this sermon, and the scripture is from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, which I'll read now. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple." I'm always intrigued by the way angels are depicted in Hollywood. Think about Clarence the Angel from It's a Wonderful Life. Think about Michael Landon's character in that 80s TV show Highway to Heaven. Think about Roma Downey and the, the recently departed Della Reese from Touched by an Angel. All these depictions of angels have one thing in common. The angels are completely harmless the angels are nice they're friendly they're they're non-threatening They would never do anything for which they would need to say, fear not, because no one would be afraid of them under any circumstances. And and what's the deal with those cherub kind of angels, those little baby angels that we always see in paintings and especially Hallmark cards uh, this time of year? Needless to say, the angel Gabriel, who shows up in the sanctuary while Uh, while uh, Zechariah is there serving. Well, he is no cherub and he is no Michael Landon, Roma Downey kind of angel. He's definitely a fear not kind of angel because he's the kind of angel who inspires fear. Now I'm going to say more about the way that he punishes Zechariah in verses 18 to 20 next time. For now, I want to talk more about what happens before those verses. Zechariah was a priest, and he served in a priestly division that two weeks out of the year would serve in the temple. And this was one of Zechariah's weeks to serve in the temple. We're told something important about him and his wife in verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. First of all, this does not mean that Zechariah and Elizabeth were without sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible tells us. To be, to be righteous before God and blameless under the law in this particular context meant that no one could accuse this couple of living a sinful lifestyle. It meant that they were sincere in loving God and striving to please Him. It meant that they had an abiding faith in God. It meant that when they did sin, they repented. And they performed all the required sacrifices in order to be reconciled with God. But Luke's point in emphasizing their righteousness is to say that they, they didn't do anything to deserve what Luke describes in verse seven when he writes, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Do you see this connection between verse six and verse seven? They were righteous before God, but they, they sincerely believed in God and trusted in God. But They they were committed to, to living their lives to please God and glorify God. But, in other words, in the eyes of the world, something was wrong with them. If Zechariah and Elizabeth were truly righteous, if they sincerely believed in God, if they sincerely loved God, if they sincerely were seeking God's will, if they were committed to pleasing him and glorifying him, then surely they wouldn't be suffering like this. And this is why in verse 25, you can, you can get this, this palpable sense of relief that Elizabeth feels when she finds out that she's going to conceive and give birth to a son. The Lord has taken away my reproach among people. Taken away my disgrace is how most English translations put it. The point is, it was disgraceful for a married couple not to have children because everyone would assume that God was punishing you for some sin that you had committed. We see the same dynamic at work in John chapter 9 with the man who was born blind. Remember, Jesus and his disciples come upon this man and the disciples ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. And the same was true for Elizabeth and Zechariah. God wanted them to be childless for a lengthy period of time so that the power of God could be seen in them. After all, the two of them, by all outward appearances, they were past the point of having children. And even, even when they were younger, they were unable to have kids So God was not only going to have to work a miracle for them personally, for which they and their friends and family could celebrate and and, and praise God. Even more, God was going to use them as part of a much larger miracle to save the world from sin through the life, death and resurrection of God's son, Jesus. This child that they were going to give birth to was going to be that prophet that the Old Testament foretold, a prophet like Elijah, who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Nearly everything the, the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah in verses 13 to 17 come directly from Old Testament prophecy. And he's speaking about John the Baptist, of course. God's power was going to be seen in Elizabeth, in Zechariah, and the evidence of this power is demonstrated by the fact that every year during the season of Advent and Christmas, millions of people around the world celebrate what God did through them two thousand years ago. There's not that many people from that long ago that we remember every year, but but we remember them because God's power was demonstrated in them. All that to say, far from punishing. Zechariah and Elizabeth through all the years, decades of anxious waiting and praying and bearing the reproach of others far from punishing them. God was actually blessing them so that all the waiting, all the suffering, all the tears, they were part of God's plan for them, not just for them, but for the whole world so that the power of God could be seen in them is there a message here for us i believe there's an important one it's difficult but it's important sometimes god's blessings hurt sometimes god's blessings feel more like punishment at least in the short run Are we okay with that? Now, before you answer, remember that we love and serve a Savior. We follow a Savior who says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We recall Paul's words in Philippians 3, which we looked at a few weeks ago. He compares himself as a Christian to an Olympic athlete, a runner, when he says that that he forgets what lies behind and strains forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If the prize is worth it, what short term pain and suffering wouldn't a world class athlete endure in order to win it? Think of all the pain and suffering that the Georgia Bulldogs endured this season and in previous seasons in order to win the prize that they won last night. I mean, think about Nick Chubb. Wasn't it just a couple of seasons ago that he had a he had a season ending knee injury? Was that pain and suffering worth it in order that he could win what he won last night and potentially what the whole team might win next month? Just last week, there was an article in the New York Times about professional football. And I'm sure this is true for college football as well. But it said that playing pro football was physically the equivalent of getting into a serious car wreck every weekend. Just speaking physically in terms of what it does to these players' bodies. Why do they endure that? because the prize is worth it to them. The money is worth it, the rings are worth it, but mostly, I suspect, the glory is worth it. The glory of making a stadium filled with cheering fans deeply happy. The glory of being celebrated by by millions. The problem is we human beings aren't made for that kind of glory, although we usually live as if we are. We are made to glorify God alone. We're made for his glory. So I kind of admire these athletes. I know it can be showy sometimes, but I do kind of admire these athletes who, when they make a big play, or when they score a touchdown, they, they point to heaven or they kneel in prayer. Because at least they're showing that they understand who it is that really deserves all the glory. By contrast, the prize for which we Christians run this race of life, the prize whose value is infinitely greater than any prize we can win on this earth, this eternal life with God forever, this prize is worth everything. What pain and suffering wouldn't we be willing to endure in order to receive that prize? Zechariah and Elizabeth, after anxious years of waiting, praying, suffering, they caught a glimpse of the prize that was waiting for them. And for all of us in the future who would call on the name of Jesus, they caught a glimpse of this prize. And this righteous couple was able to say, what a blessing, what a blessing. It's been incredibly difficult, but it was completely worth it for this. I want to live a life so radically oriented toward God and his kingdom, toward God's son and his gospel, that I can say no matter what the cost, no matter what the pain, no matter what the indignity, no matter what the obstacles, no matter what the suffering, it was completely worth it. Don't you want to be able to say that? Because if only we could learn to say it and to mean it, suddenly life's setbacks disappointments regrets failures fears humiliations and everything else we suffer would start to look drastically different it would no longer be elizabeth and zechariah were righteous people but suzanne is a righteous person but conrad is, is a righteous person But Amy is a righteous person, but it would be more like Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous people and this heartbreaking event happened to them, but look what God did with it. Look look how God used it for his purposes. Look how he used it to help spread the gospel of his son, Jesus. Look how God used it to to save other people for eternity. Now, I know you're going to laugh when I say this. But do you have a but in your life? What is it? Or if you have more than one, what are they? In Christ... God will always transform our buts into ands because the but isn't the end of the story. The failure, the setback, the pain, the disappointment, the heartbreak that isn't the end of the story. If you're experiencing those things, guess what? You're still somewhere in the middle of the story. God hasn't written the end of it. He, he knows what the end of it is, but he hasn't written it. But we can be confident that when he does write the end of our story, it's going to be good. God is not finished with us yet. But let's, let's notice something about this transformation that God does. This turning heartbreak into blessing. It doesn't just happen on its own. It happens through prayer. We see that in today's scripture. Look at verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. Now, Zechariah had been praying for quite a while that he and his, he and his wife would, would have a child. And I'm sure that Elizabeth had been praying too. But why is God answering this prayer right now at this moment? I think it has to do with what Luke describes in verse 10, when he says that while Zechariah was in the holy place of the temple in the sanctuary, burning this incense on the altar... There were people outside doing what? These people were praying. A multitude of people were outside praying. Now, were these people outside praying that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have a child after years of trying and failing? No. They didn't know who Zech, they didn't know anything about Zechariah's family situation. They were praying instead for the the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. And for all the prophecies about the Messiah to be fulfilled, including the one about the Elijah figure who would come first. They were praying about that. But God answered Zechariah's prayer, a personal prayer that he and his wife would have a child, because by doing so, he could also answer The prayers of the people outside, a prayer for the salvation of Israel and for the whole world. In other words, God didn't answer Zechariah's prayer simply because he wanted Zechariah and Elizabeth to have a child. As nice as that would be, he answered Zechariah's prayer because by doing so, It would play a necessary role in saving the world from their sins. God answered Zechariah's prayer because it served God's purposes to do so. The most important of which is to save the world through his son, Jesus. This is why in John's gospel, John refers to all the miracles that Jesus works as signs. And that means Jesus is not performing miracles for their own sake or to show off or to demonstrate his power. He's not even performing miracles in order simply to heal the blind and the deaf and the mute and the lame, the diseased, the the, 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 the demon-possessed. He's performing these miracles because doing so is a sign that points to some truth about who Jesus Christ is and what his gospel means and how the world can be saved through him. I said earlier that our lives need to be centered on God and his glory. Needless to say, our prayers need to be as well. And Jesus teaches us this in his model prayer that he gave us, the Lord's Prayer, which we say every week. First, we pray that God will be known, loved, worshipped, and glorified throughout the world when we say, hallowed be thy name. We pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, which of course also includes God doing uh, his will in our lives rather than having our own will be done. We pray for God to give us our daily bread and all the other necessities of life that we need simply to survive. But we don't even pray for our daily bread for the sake of simply surviving. In a way, whether we live or die is beside the point. Remember um, Paul's words in Philippians chapter one. He says that he's torn between living and dying. He's suffering in prison. He may he knows that he might be executed, and yet he doesn't know which is which he prefers. But he finally says, "Well, you know, I do prefer continuing to live in this world because why? Because I'm afraid of getting you know killed." No, he says. Because I can continue my ministry of reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ as disciples of Jesus Christ, whom God has called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded. Our lives in this world should be focused on that as well. We make a promise as Methodists when we join this church or any other United Methodist Church that we are going to be witnesses. That means we are going to work to fulfill the Great Commission. For as long as God gives us life and breath in this world, we are to use our life first to fulfill the Great Commission. And you might say, yes, but I've got a job. So much of my time is just focused on working, not fulfilling the Great Commission. Okay, let me ask you this. Why? Why are you working? Are you working merely to earn money so you can live the same mediocre, materialistic, American middle-class existence that all of your unsaved neighbors are also living? Are you working so you can have all the same boring, trivial stuff that they have, all of which will burn away instantly the moment Jesus Christ returns? And we stand before God in judgment. And what will we then have to show for ourselves? Look at all this great stuff I bought, Lord. Look at my car. Look at my gym membership. Look at my iPhone X. Isn't it great? It's not going to be there. (laughs) Or are you investing money for an eternal purpose? to fulfill the Great Commission, to help save people from their sins. And maybe you'll say, well, I'd like to fulfill the Great Commission, Pastor Brent, but mostly I'm just trying to feed my family, to pay the bills, to keep a roof over our heads. To which I say, yes, but why are you doing that? If you're a parent... God has already made you a pastor and a missionary. Did you know that the most important mission field is the lives of your own children or grandchildren? Do do they know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Are you showing them what that means? Are you living it out? You say, God's word is very important to me. Okay, are you reading it? Are you studying it every day? Are they seeing you do that? Do they know it's important to you? Are you obeying it? You say prayer. Prayer is the most important thing. Okay. Do they see you as you face life's challenges going to God in prayer? Are you praying with them? Are you showing them that prayer is a priority? You say worshiping God is is important. We need to do it every week. Okay. Are they seeing you do that? Or, you know, is church on Sunday morning kind of optional depending on what happened the night before, depending on what your plans are the rest of the day? Because guess what? Your children are watching you. Your grandchildren are watching you. They're learning far more about what you believe about Jesus through your actions than what you say. And consider this, whether or not your children will be saved for eternity depends far more on you than any pastor or any Sunday school teacher or any youth minister or any children's minister at any church, anywhere, parents, grandparents, are you are you shirking your responsibility? Did, did some pastor that you had along the way neglect to tell you that nothing less than heaven or hell hangs in the balance of what you do with your life and what you show your kids that you do with your life? If so, I apologize on their behalf, but I'm telling you the truth, heaven and hell for your children and grandchildren hangs in the balance of what you do right now with your life, with your time, with your talents, with your possessions, with your money. And even after your children are saved, your mission to them has not ended because the next most responsi- most important responsibility you have is equipping them to glorify God and to fulfill the Great Commission and dedicate their lives to reaching the lost in their own way, however God calls them, reaching the lost with the gospel. All that to say, even the money you earn to feed and clothe your family and keep them safe and warm is also ultimately for glorifying God and fulfilling the great commission. But after you've done all that, after you've done all that with your money, chances are for the vast majority of you, maybe not all of you, but for the vast majority of you, you've got money left over and it's not yours to do with simply as you please. It's God's money. You and I will stand before God in final judgment and we will answer for how we use the resources that God gave us. This is the clear teaching of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Are we prepared to say, yes, God, I've been faithful with my salary, I've been faithful in in giving to you uh, this this percentage of my income because I know that's what your word tells me I ought to do. And maybe that's not even enough because I need to keep on giving. I don't know, but I have been faithful. I made this point last Thursday in an email blast that I sent you. At the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he thanks this church for supporting him financially. But then he says to them, and I'm paraphrasing here, not that I needed anything from you. What I need, Paul says is for God to give you the kind of spiritual blessing in your life that comes Only when you are faithful and generous with the money that God has given you. That's that's a paraphrase, but that's what Paul means. There's a special kind of spiritual blessing that comes to us. He doesn't elaborate on what that is. I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel. I'm not saying if only we give this much, God's going to give us a million bucks. I'm not beginning to say anything like that. We don't know what this spiritual blessing is, but it is real. And God wants to shower you with that. And he's telling us in Philippians one way that God's going to do that. One theme of my preaching recently, you might have noticed, Is that we as a church, I I believe this from the bottom of my heart, that we as a church need to fall in love with our Lord Jesus all over again. To treasure Jesus above all earthly treasures. Brothers and sisters, we simply cannot do that unless or until we become faithful in our financial giving. That's that's in part what this Sunday, Stewardship Commitment Sunday, is all about. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta, I want you to know that you are invited to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. Our church is on West Main Street in downtown Hampton, and we have two worship services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 and a more traditional service at 11. I hope you'll join us.